It is getting easier and easier to kill more people faster. And I, I guess I, my question for you, John, is would you have a problem with, I, I know you would say you would not agree to a ban on AR-15s and assault weapons, but an age limit at the very least, because these seem to consistently be kids under 21, 18, 19 years old, 17 years old. New York just raised the law to 21. The guy was one of the things the governor did besides strengthening the red flag law. And what do you feel about I, that? I, I, I'm torn between that, and I'll tell you why. You have, again, mass shootings are not as prevalent as the media would make them out to be, but one is too many. One child dying is too many. But the other side of that is you can't punish everyone in America for someone's criminal behavior. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. Last week, you heard part one of a conversation about guns in America. My guests were Melanie Jeffcoat, who's a gun control activist who lives in Alabama, and John Godfrey, a gun owner who lives in upstate New York. This week is part two of that conversation, but before we get to that, I have a number of items of business that I'll try to tell you about as quickly as possible. The first is that I have a new podcast, a second podcast. That's one in addition to this one. I'm co-hosting it with Sarah Hader, who was a guest on The Unspeakable last month. We had such a fun time that we decided to start a show together. It's called A Special Place in Hell, And we're going to be talking about, you know, things in the news, things in the culture, um, often, but not always through the lens of sex and gender. Sarah and I have uh, similar outlooks in a lot of ways, but we're very different. We're 20 years apart in age, and so much has changed in the world over those 20 years that sometimes it seems like we are from radically different periods in history. And so we're going to be comparing notes. We're going to be talking about things like family life, the mating and dating economy, the workplace, the kind of disembodied nature of contemporary life. We started off with the question of why there is no female equivalent to Jordan Peterson. And we kind of went from there when we conceived of of the show and the kinds of things that we would be looking into. So we're going to do it every week, and we're still figuring out the schedule, but you can find it on Substack at aspecialplace.substack.com. You can subscribe for free. You can also support us by becoming a member, but for now, the show is totally free. It's also on all of your regular podcast places. Uh, And just to note that this podcast, The Unspeakable, is still monetized on Patreon. It's not a Substack podcast at the moment. So if you are a supporter on Patreon, first of all, thank you. And second of all, don't go anywhere. And you can always still become a patron at patreon.com slash the unspeakable. Our biweekly member hangouts have been pretty spicy lately. So if you join at the $10 a month level or higher, you can come to those. I am always there. My dog Hugo sometimes makes an appearance. So it's a great value. Okay, next thing. My heterodox women's community, the Unspeakeasy, is being designed and built as we speak. 
This is going to be a place for women who are tired of the tribal nonsense. Uh, You know who you are. And we can come together and talk about all sorts of things with nuance. There will be online communities as well as in-person gatherings and retreats. Like I said, I'm still sorting it all out. But if you're interested, you can visit theunspeakeasy.com and learn more about it and get on the mailing list and join us. It's looking like there are going to be a lot of us. Okay, so today's episode is part two of Guns, A Civil Disagreement. If you didn't hear part one yet, you might want to go back and listen to that first, although it's not strictly necessary. In this part of the conversation, Melanie and John and I talk about why so many people feel the need to own assault-style weapons and what those of us who are not gun people don't understand about guns. Admittedly, uh, it's a lot, in my case anyway, and how we feel about our personal safety at home and out in the world. Uh, And finally, John and Melanie talk about what sorts of compromises might be possible with regard to gun legislation. I should say that we recorded this conversation on June 7th. On June 25th, President Biden passed a gun bill that would um, expand the background check system for gun buyers under 21 and do a couple of other things along the lines of increasing funding for mental health. Uh, That news was all but eclipsed by the overturning of Roe v. Wade that same day, but I thought it would bear mentioning. Anyway, here is part two of my conversation with Melanie Jeffcoat and John Godfrey. Do you feel safe in your home, Melanie? Do you feel safe like walking down the street? I know you said you're from Las Vegas originally, because there was a really interesting moment when John and I uh, spoke on the phone before this conversation. You know, I talked about how I've lived in big cities for most of my life, New York City. And I never have felt unsafe walking down the street or being in my apartment. And, you know, he and I talked about how it was really just sort of a mentality, what what you're used to. So before we get into that, can you describe like what your living situation is like? Are you afraid of your home being broken into for any reason? Uh, Well, have a great alarm system and a motion sensor. (laughs) So, you know. We try to do everything we can to be safe. I know that statistically, you know, especially for women, say if I'm home alone now, I'm I'm not married to John Godfrey. I'm sure he trained his lovely wife who I've met. She's terrific. But statistically, when we, when women get a weapon for self-defense, it is oftentimes used against them rather than they're able to use it to defend themselves. John, is that true? I I think what that's doing is blending two statistics. One is the statistic of suicide, which is the predominance of gun deaths or suicides, uh, along with the statistic of that homeowners protecting themselves. And I think women, I'll I'll be honest with you, I'm a 20-year cop. I, I have to humble myself a little bit here. My wife's a better shot with a pistol than I am and trains about half as much as I do. But women very rarely commit suicide by gunshot. Relative it, to you're men. right. That statistic, that number is lower. But I think they're blending them because I don't think that women, I think women are perfectly capable of uh, defending themselves if they take the time to do the training, 
Uh, I'm not for anybody buying a firearm and then not training with it. That's not safe. Well, and if you're not, you know, uh, I, I had talks with people in the gun conversation about, you know, you, if you would just, if I could just take you out shooting and you could feel the thrill of like shooting an AR-15. And I thought, okay, so it's, so I get, it's like a adrenaline rush to shoot a certain weapon like that. I understand that. I understand. I have friends who go to Barber Motorsports and want to drive that Porsche 9,000 miles around in a circle. This is not something I'm interested in. To that point, though, I told somebody in the gun conversation, I said, well, you know, if it's a real thrill to shoot one of those, then why not have a range where you can go experience shooting that, but not actually take it home and, you know, I don't know. I just, I don't don't want to give up my right to self-defense. I'm not going to do that. And I don't think any American should have to do it. I understand that. I understand that. No, I was to answer Megan's question. uh, I, I feel safe in my home. I do not have a gun and I probably, you know, probably have a great alarm system and a great dog too, which dogs, dogs will do really more than anything, honestly, because she lets us know if there's anyone near the house. But where I have felt different is I remember after the Aurora shooting, I just can't believe how many there are. My kids wanted to go see a movie and I forget what it was. They were little though. And so it was a kid's movie. And we went in to a matinee and we were the only three people in the movie theater. And my kids got so excited because like we had the whole movie theater to ourselves. And this was days after that shooting. And I don't remember that movie because I sat there the entire time thinking, okay, well, what would I do? Would I just, well, we're the only ones in there. So we would be the target. Like we would be, we, where would we go? Would I just, I guess I would put them down between the seats and I don't, I guess I'd just get on top of them. Okay, where are the exits? How quickly could I get at? Who's working on? I mean, that's all I thought through the entire movie. It's a movie theater. Churches, same thing. I don't anymore really go anywhere without checking exits and thinking, well, this this could be could be, could be where it happens. That's come my, my baggage, my experience. But I, I remember picking my kids up when they were uh, my youngest, when she was in middle school, and they had a, a an active shooter it wasn't a drill because there was somebody, um, the police were called because somebody did have a weapon just outside the school. My kids didn't know that at the time. The whole school went to a lockdown because there was an active issue that needed to be, you know, they needed to be safe. My daughter was in PE, so she was in the um, gym. And she said, all the kids were running into the equipment room. And she was texting me and she's like, mom, mom, there's a red or silver, forget it was like red code red or whatever the code was, I knew what it was, which meant it was serious. And she was distraught because she said, everybody grabbed all the bats and the helmets. So all I could get was a golf club. She was 11. And it pissed me off that my child, that my 11 year old was texting me knowing there was, now they didn't know at the time that it was being addressed. It was outside the school and the cops were there. They only knew what they knew, which that was an active shooter and they were in the locked in the gym, and she had a golf club. My tiny little eleven-year-old thinking, "Well, this is it. I didn't get a helmet." And I hear this story when I'm picking her and her friends up from school, and some of them are saying, "Well, we would have lived because our teacher decided to leave through this back door and took us all with her. We all just ran. I mean, it was chaos, and the the trauma that is inflicted on these kids in not just that, but in these drills. And then the 
BS, sorry, I don't know what I'm allowed to say, of there was a door left open or, you know, the teachers need to be armed or we need vets or cops at the school and the school basically needs to be a prison instead of addressing the fact that that 18 year old should not have had that weapon and that amount of ammunition, period. And in any of these shootings, we have a whole generation of kids, my kids included, that are living in a different world than John and I grew up in. Even with my experience, these kids are bombarded with death in a, what should be a safe place. Well, I got I to gotta say something on that, and that is that it's an emotional event. I can tell that with, for you, Melanie. I understand that. But the other side of it is we had duck and cover drills when I was five or six in kindergarten, uh, lived through them, understood. The world is not a friendly place as it should be. That doesn't make an excuse for it. But I will say this, having been a police officer, I experienced it on many levels from the level of home invasions and dealt with some of those when I was a state officer in, in Wichita. And uh, I, I actually worked peripherally on the BTK Strangler case, uh, gave the task force some assistance on that. And uh, I can tell you that there are some very bad people out there in the world. I've seen some of them firsthand or their work anyway. And uh, I will say this, that's why I, th I think everyone has a right to be armed and protect themselves because there are bad people out there. They don't follow the law and they will do horrible things. And this goes back to the fifties and the, the clutter murders. My boss in Kansas actually was a KBI agent back in the fifties and knew Nye who worked on the, uh, you know, in cold blood, the clutter murders. And, uh, you know, I've, there's a home invasion that, um, while I was in Wichita that occurred and, uh, you know, four young people, were three of them were killed and and one of them was left for dead she survived but it, it was horrific and those things happen and i can't solve them i don't think anyone can but i think as americans and it's the great thing that our country offers we have the right to protect ourselves and our families and our home and i agree it's a shame that your daughter had to go through that but there, it's also a very emotional issue. And my experience is that to solve this issue, we've got to think with clear heads and not emotion because emotion is not going to help us. Okay. I want to float something here. So what do you say to the person who says, look, school shootings are horrific. Uh, serial killers are terrifying, but despite how much we hear about them and think about them, they are incredibly rare. I mean, we should also be clear that a mass shooting, it, it, it can be what up to four people is what it takes um, to four, qualify four as a more. mass four shooting. Okay. Okay. So not to diminish anything, but when we say there have been X number of mass shootings since Uvalde, that doesn't mean there were equivalent. There were four or more, right? Okay. So it, I feel like one could make the argument that because these events are vanishingly rare, that training kids for active shooter situations, just like training kids for duck and cover, um, is is terrifying and, and not really worth it. Like, what do you say to the person who says, you know, the mental health effects on these kids, 
you know, putting these thoughts in their heads when the chances of this happening are so rare. And in fact, if they do happen, it's going to be so chaotic that, you know, arguably the best thing anybody could do is just run. I mean, it's harder to shoot a moving target than somebody crouched under their desk. Why are we why are we having these kinds of drills? And on the other side, uh, is it really worth it to arm the the citizenry so we can protect ourselves against you know random killings that are extremely unlikely to happen? Well, one of the things the media does not report the other side. There was a citizen who stopped an active threat, just uh, one of those shootings after Uvalde, and the media hardly touched it. And she was a lawful firearms owner and someone with a a rifle, I don't even know what type of rifle it was, started shooting at a group of party goers and she shot and killed that person and stopped the threat. Uh, But you didn't hear anything about that. And the other thing interesting about those shootings since Uvalde, if you look at them, and I look at everyone, I, I try to get as much information as I can. A, I have the time, I'm retired now. And B, I'm trying to find out what's common and what's not. And again, if you look at all those, they had ties to the urban drug gang culture, every one of them. And so, you know, again, we're, we got to start putting criminals in jail. And right now we have accusations about prosecutors that don't do their job, don't want to, uh, there's everything about equity, but what about equity for the uh, honest citizen who's the victim? And, and that needs to happen. It's time. Yeah, I mean, speaking as somebody in the media, I can tell you that there are a whole bunch of reasons that the urban crime-related shootings don't get reported. And among them are that journalists don't relate to that kind of thing. I mean, I live in New York City. I live on the border of Harlem and Washington Heights, okay? And that, that that's not my world at all. And, you know, it w- I would be far more likely if I had kids to have a kid in a school and be worried, you know, rationally or not about that kid's safety in a, in a suburban public school, then I worry for myself walking down the street. So I I just, I I think you're absolutely right about that, John, that the reporting and the public perception is extremely skewed, but Melanie, feel free to jump in on any of this. Well, I think that, you know, I I try to avoid it's, it's, you know, and because I hear that, here, you know, people say, well, what about black on black crime and urban crime? And, and, and I'm not implying anything with what John said, because I think John as a cop has seen it all firsthand. But when I hear that, sometimes I immediately think, okay, that's sort of tinged with some racism. And, and, and also not... It's what? I'm sorry. You have to repeat that. It, it's tin, it, can, it can appear tinged with racism. To, to, when I hear people here, and you did not use this, but people here will say it's black on black crime is the vast majority of what we see. And you know, what I look at is, you know, and I, I can speak to my, we have communities that are typically undervalued, under-resourced. In Alabama, education is funded by basically the luck of your zip code. So if, if you're in a nice neighborhood, you're going to go to a really nice school. If you're not, you're not. And, and then when things get bad and shootings happen and the neighborhoods become problematic, uh, where, you know, let's put those bad guys in jail. And, and there's, there doesn't seem to be that disconnect of, I mean, a connection of like, well, how about we address the source of the issue and make sure that the people in these communities have access to uh, everything from groceries to a proper education so that there's hope 
uh, for them. Um, we could go one I, further and say they need to have, uh, you know, a conventional household or at least a structure that provides the support of a conventional two-parent household and solve the poverty issue and everything else. But in the, in the reality, we don't have the resources. The politicians are not going to do it. The quickest way to address it, as I said, and I'm validating everything you're saying, is to put criminals in jail because that'll send the message, you can't do that. And people will learn real quick or they'll be well, in jail. Right. And I think to, to Megan's point about the school shootings, although the mass shootings of four or more, school or otherwise, are becoming more significant. Bottom line is 200 Americans, plus or minus on average, are shot and killed every single day in America. And 200 more are wounded. And they are the forgotten people because we talk a lot about how many are killed. There are people with catastrophic injuries from gunshots that the talk about the media not talking about. It's like, you didn't die, you don't exist. There are a lot of people in all of these situations who have uh, life-altering injuries, some paralyzed and you know long-term medical issues because they quote unquote survived a shooting you know so that that is not to be underestimated and there's you know ways we can address all of this and and they're not as i said earlier they're not complicated i think the the vast majority if we could we could have background checks that are actually then enforced looking at what happened in Tulsa with that irate person who shot the doctor uh, and the patient and the receptionist. He clearly was having a, a really, really difficult time. He had left numerous messages. He went into a gun store. He bought his gun. He bought his ammunition and two hours later killed people. I cannot imagine that the clerk on the other side of that register at the gun store didn't sense something. But no, it's that's not, not fair. No, it. but I mean, it's not their, my point being, it's not, it shouldn't be their job. It shouldn't be someone who's getting minimum wage going, my instincts are telling me. This but wait, would this person have a background check? Sorry to interrupt you. In this scenario, why can this person just go in and get it? Does it, it depend on the state? Is that what you're saying? It depends well, on the state. The federal, the federal law, the check is, do they have a criminal record, a domestic violence record that shows up? And those aren't always perfect. And again, were they honest on the form? Nobody's honest on the form that's a criminal. So, so you know, the bottom line is, do they have a record that would preclude them from making the purchase? That's really what the background check is. Which this person perhaps did not, but he was clearly having a very, very, very bad time in his and, life. And the Buffalo shooter was taken in as a high school senior because of a threat he made in an online group. And I read it today just to confirm my, my thinking was right, uh, was on a, a probably at least a 24-hour hold because he spent more than a day in a facility, was evaluated. I heard, I don't know if this is true, he talked to a psychologist or a psychiatrist, a mental health professional for uh, 30 minutes and was released. And again, that's got to be addressed. I mean, they're not, I had a, we used to have a police psychologist when I was the chief and I had to be out briefed by him every year on my officer's psyche valves. And uh, he said to me once, because we talked a lot about it and he was, he did a lot of cop psyche valves. That's what his profession was. And he told me, he said, um, psychology is unlike conventional medicine and that it's an art form practiced better by some than others. And 
I understand that. It's not like you go to the orthopedic doc and he says, we're going to give you a new knee. You're going to be all better. Um, there's so much they don't know about the psychiatry of it. But we've got to figure something out on this. And that's not to blame it on mental health. As, as Melanie pointed out, I am an advocate for anyone seeking mental health treatment. But I will tell you this. I used to, when I worked for the VA Medical Center, we had uh, just veterans in crisis that would come in the ER. They were clearly disturbed, clearly a danger to themselves. And the psychologist on duty would come in, evaluate them. And the first thing we'd say to him is, Doc, you're going to hold them because uh, we need to go if you're not. And he said, well, he's not free to leave. Well, you're going to do the paperwork for a, um, you know, our equivalent of the mental health hold. And he said, well, I don't want to because then he won't be participative in his treatment. And I'm like, not my problem. The Supreme Court says just the presence of uniformed police means uh, custody. And we can't stay here unless you're going to hold them and keep them here. That we'd be violating his rights. And I used to go round and round with the mental health department about this. And they have to be able to step up and at least admit where they can't make these diagnoses. So the rest of us know that. Well, we also, I agree with a lot of that. And I, I think there's, uh, you know, but I also have to address, you know, there's at least here, I know there are hospitals are like, I can't, insurance is not going to cover them to stay here if I can't have a definitive reason to hold them. So there's all kind of issues. And John's right. It's muddy, very, very muddy. Um, but in terms of Buffalo, I just want to, you know, Hate is not a mental illness. And we need to also address this growing online threat that is recruiting young men. And to be honest, they're almost all young men. Very rare that a, a, women, a woman is going to do a, pull one of these mass shootings. Um, these young men are, are being recruited into this online hatred, the white supremacy um, the, uh, anti-Semitism, that recruitment tool is uh, extremely dangerous. And that also needs to be addressed just like every other threat that's out there, because that is, that is only going to continue to grow. Right. But in fairness, hate is not a mental illness, but people with mental illness are much more likely to act out, out of hate. So, yes, exactly. yes, exactly. And and they are hearing things that are are validating. You know, some someone could say something that the three of us would hear and go, that's just crazy conspiracy talk. And that's racist or white supremacist or whatever. And brush it off. as like, that's crazy. But you hit the right ears with that kind of talk. And now you're recruiting. I mean, Charlottesville, you just look at what's happening in this country. That concerns me. And you add that to any 18-year-old can go in with a driver's license and get that kind of weaponry and, a, and, and high-capacity magazines. I mean, again, statistically, after the ban on assault weapons and the uh, high-capacity magazines was allowed to expire, uh, mass shootings rose dramatically. That's a fact. I am, I am here because the kid that came into my high school had a pistol. And I don't even know if he had six bullets in it. He may have only had three and then left. I don't know. I didn't pursue him. But the reality is it is getting easier and easier to kill more people faster. And I, I guess I 
my question for you, John, is would you have a problem with, I, I know you'd say you would not agree to a ban on uh, AR-15s and assault weapons, but an age limit at the very least, because these seem to consistently be kids under 21, then 18, 19 years old, 17 years old. New York just raised the law to 21. The guy was one of the things the governor did besides strengthening the red flag law. And what do you feel about I, that? I, I'm torn between that, and I'll tell you why. You have, again, mass shootings are not as prevalent as the media would make them out to be, but one is too many. We, one child dying is too many. But the other side of that is you can't punish everyone in America for someone's criminal behavior. It, it, that's just, we were, we were based on the rights of individuals and those rights, you know, you have to, you have to convince me where there's a balance there for reciprocity, where people have the ability to not have the rights stripped away um, unfairly. And I know a lot of 17, 18 year olds who are responsible firearms uh, owners and uh, under the supervision of their parents, uh, they were brought up in that environment and they understand it and they understand right from wrong. But, um, you know, as far as improving the red flag law, I don't have a problem with it. The only concern I have on a red flag law is, and ponder this for a second, you might get a psychiatrist to say, you're not safe with your gun at the moment. And you just said you have empathy for the mental health um, uh, sufferers of the world because, and I do too. The other side of that is some people can get better. I personally don't think a lot get better, but some do. But you'll never, you, I defy you to find me a psychologist to say that person's safe to own a gun now. Well, Once they the take thing, the gun, it's not coming back. But a, what, my understanding of the red flag law is that it is a it is a it temporarily removes guns from a dangerous situation, and it's got due process. It's got to have hard evidence. It's required that there would be hard evidence that this person is a danger to themselves or others, and there is actual punishment for lying or abuse of that red flag law. Um, and a judge oversees this due process it to does. make sure you're, that, you're you know, so I, I don't. And then, you know, something we haven't talked enough about uh, is suicide, which is does account for at least half of all gun deaths. Um, and, you know, 90 percent, I think I, had to, I, I looked it up to double check, but I believe 90 percent of uh, suicide attempts with a gun end in death, whereas four percent without a gun end in death. There's a, a person here uh, who is a uh, active volunteer uh, in the sort of gun safety movement. And he has bipolar and he has been pushing for a red flag laws because he, he would like to, you know, he himself, he's the first to say, I'd like to make sure I'm not, I cannot go buy a gun if I am suicidal. And he shouldn't be able to. I agree with you. Right. I, I think that that's it. And this is where we can find that middle ground, like in terms of red flag laws that have definitive due process, very transparent due process, um, an age limit on high capacity magazines and AR-15 or assault style weapons. I mean, just let's just see if it helps, because at this point, you're right. There are so many freaking guns on the street that anybody could, you know, 
cross over and get it. But that's why we need a we need a federal law, because if if Texas has got loose laws uh, or California, California has got very, very tight laws. So does Connecticut. But they're surrounded by states that don't. So the states, the states with the highest gun laws statistically have the highest crime volume of gun crime. You can look it up and you look at the is cities. Is that because they have, have big s- cities, but that's because they have big urban centers. Okay, but that's, again, you know, okay, they still have gun laws, and that means people aren't following the laws. That's why a lot of firearms uh, in the firearms community are against this. Let's enforce what we've got. Let's do proactive things to stop it. Don't put laws on the innocent, honest, law-abiding citizens because you're not helping. In fact, the restrictions on ammunition that we're finding now, because it's hard to purchase ammunition, to find ammunition, only hurts and that people don't train with their firearm enough, in my opinion. Can you under, Can you explain the bump stock concept? Because I, I, I don't understand this, and I think a lot of people are confused about this. Like, why do we, this is the thing that you buy that turns the semi-automatic into effectively yeah. a full automatic in Vegas. Why would we need yeah. this? Why is this necessary for I anybody? don't have a problem. I don't have a problem with that going away. A bump stock is a modification to the stock that uses the low recoil of an AR-15 uh, or other rifles that you can turn around and it, it the recoil of the rifle with your finger on the tricket, trigger, excuse me, um, causes it to fire and continue to cycle the fire. Now, I can tell you this, you can take your thumb and hook it in your belt loop and make an AR-15 fire that or another weapon of the same type of semi-automatic weapon. Um, you're just taking advantage of the recoil. Now, not everybody could probably do that, but I can tell you that it can be done. People have done it. Again, you have to attack the criminal. That's the biggest problem. And we don't do that. We have criminals that are right back out on the street that have committed gun crimes, and we can't take the individual honest citizen's right. I mean, it's the same thing. I saw something this week that related that, uh, you know, we don't take cars away from sober drivers because of drunk drivers. That's that's a pretty good analogy. So we need cars that, to get around. Okay, I'm just you, and, you know and, what I'm going to say to that. We need and guns I, to protect ourselves. Okay, and I'm going to also ask, I, I, you know, I I have a daughter who you know uh, needs to learn how to drive before she can get her license. Uh, you need to go either through driver's ed or your parents teach you or you do it through school and then you have to go get the learner's permit where you understand the rules. That of the sounds road, just like guns. Right. Yeah. You, you, you get trained you or your parents get you. Yeah. 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 But I mean, you, she, it's harder for her to get her driver's license here than it would be for her to go buy a gun in Alabama. Well, I can't speak to Alabama law because I'm not a resident of the state, but I will say that it's not that in, unusual. There's lots of states that have similar laws down here, especially. Well, I understand Texas. Uh, there are a lot of states that have just, uh, you know, uh, mandated or allowed open carry. Uh, but again, we're swatting flies with a sledgehammer and I don't think that's the solution to the problem because the criminal is going to go find another, another, you could take the gun away. Criminal's still going to do what he does. Maybe not as effectively, but I'll give you this example. My wife's nieces and nephews were in a school in Cokeville, Wyoming, little crossroads in the middle of Wyoming and nowhere. And somebody walked in there back in the 70s, late 70s, probably about 1980, and uh, with explosives strapped to them and held everybody hostage for a day until the police came and killed them. But, um, you know, again, 
criminal, the criminal mind is going to, is going to find something, some way to abuse the situation. Well, it's, it's, I would say it's really easy to sort of throw your hand up. And, you know, I, look, I am, uh, I am not, you know, a gun person, but that does not mean I want like a big magnet to suck them all up and out of the world. I support the Second Amendment, although it was written back when it probably took 10 minutes to reload your rifle. So I, I think I think even the founders who wrote that would probably look today and go, all right, wait, 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 wait. We didn't realize those would exist. Okay. It was written a long time ago with a limited knowledge of, of what would happen and be created in this world. Um, but I do support the Second Amendment. I do support your right to have it. I think that we are dealing with, and especially me as just a volunteer out here just speaking for free to anyone who will listen, but I'm going up against, you know, I think Mitt Romney got $12 million from the NRA. We have politicians who are being funded by an organization that is basically facilitates making money off of guns and their philosophy, all guns all, everywhere all the time is very, very dangerous. We're going to pause here for a short message from me. Are you appreciating this conversation and wishing there were more like it out there? Well, there are lots more right here. I do this show every week and I pretty much do it all by myself. That is why, as much as I'm loath to ask for help, people who know me know this, I am offering this gentle reminder that if you value honest, thoughtful, nuanced conversations with all kinds of people, novelists, scientists, philosophers, comedians, journalists, sometimes even just regular folks with something interesting to say, I hope you'll consider supporting the show in any way you can. One way to do this is by joining our Patreon community at patreon.com slash the unspeakable. You can join for as little as $5 a month that gives you early and ad-free access to the show, or for as much as $100 a month. And yes, people have done that. There are lots of perks at every level, including if you join at the $10 a month tier or higher, the chance to join our bi-weekly hangout, where we, and that includes me, get together on Zoom to talk about a recent specific episode of the show. Joining at that level also gets you discounts on your first purchase of official Unspeakable Podcast Nuanced AF merchandise. If Patreon is not your thing, you can also make a one-time donation in any amount by going to the podcast webpage at theunspeakablepodcast.com and clicking the donation button. This podcast is a one-woman enterprise. I'm not affiliated with any institution, media company, secret investment cabal, or anything like that. I do it because I love it. And if you love it, or even like it, I hope you'll consider supporting it in any way that makes sense for you. Leaving a positive rating or review wherever you get your podcasts is a big help, actually. And telling people about the podcast, sharing it with friends, just spreading the word, actually means more to me than anything. So thank you for listening to the show, for making the unspeakable worth speaking. And with that, back to the interview. One of the reasons gun conversation worked is uh, because Essential Partners, which was the group that facilitated and, and went over communication skills with us for a day. And Michelle Holmes was the uh, editor, producer, some sort of 
higher up at advanced media and and it was her brainchild kind of and two people john seroff and parisa parza were from essential partners and they help facilitate and get everybody's communication skills honed up and we just kind of came across the idea that wouldn't it be great if the committee who's reviewing you know federally in congress the new gun safety rules because it's it's a committee so it's 50 50 if they had to sit down and do a version of gun conversation with facilitators and learn how to talk to each other and then go on and have the discussion after i I think it would do a world of good but unfortunately you'd probably never get congress to agree to do that you know listening is is so critical and that's what what I learned that weekend and, and just, you know, I'm an actor too. And, and I, and I teach my actors. I said, you know, 90% of acting is listening because it doesn't matter what you say. If you're not listening and taking in what you're hearing, then whatever you're going to say won't have any meaning. And that's just basic acting. Uh, but it's also basic life skills that we, you know, practiced that weekend in DC. And, and just for context, the weekend that we were in Washington, DC, we were at the museum which I don't know if it's still open, but our conference room was high up on that, uh, in that building. And there was a balcony and on breaks, we could go out and out on the mall was the March for Our Lives. So there were people for as far as you could see, just filling this, the streets of Washington, D.C., and speakers, and there were all those Parkland kids, and that was all, we were part of that as well. We literally were out on the balcony watching that any moment we had, and then coming back in and having these deep conversations. So it was a fascinating time for us to be having these conversations. And so John and I were just saying that, like, it's so easy to just talk without judgment and listen. Well, it's it. It's a perishable skill, though, and that's kind of the problem with uh, the world today is that uh, too many people, because of the Internet, get on there. They talk, 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 but they don't listen. You can read what somebody else writes and you don't hear it. You're not hearing. And I think the voice is a powerful thing. So on SNL, they did a funny sketch where the 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 kid, the guys, the Facebook commenters were on like a dating show and they're all like live in their basement at their mom's house and whatever, but they actually had to come face to face with the people that they said mean things to. And it's just so awkward um, because it's like you, you are anonymous when you're on that, that machine and uh, you take that away and face each other. And all of a sudden, if someone tells me, Hey, I disagree with you, I have to look at them and say, okay, why, what let's, where am I wrong? Or where, where can we meet in the middle? What can I say to clarify? Well, and nobody listens. And, and the one thing that I noticed too, especially when I get into conversations about guns, is like, Melanie, you and I f- found common ground. And I saw that some of the pro-gun people, supposedly my side, were flat out attacking you just as I was being attacked sometimes by the other side. And that's where you and I came together and said, hey, let's do it this way. And let me deal with them a little bit and see if we can't help to make a point about how you have a good conversation. And I think it worked. We did. We, we, had, we plotted. Well. We plotted. This was, this was outside of the, the weekend. This was in the Facebook group. And uh, we sort of spoke separately and said, let's come in together on this issue and show that we can find some middle ground. And, and it did kind of change things, I think, because they, 
they couldn't yell at both of us. <laughs> so, they, and it was it was very interesting as a sociology experiment. And I was talking to Michelle Holmes this last week because I called her about doing this. And a very smart woman. She's retired now. Actually, does hypnotherapy in retirement now. She's a hypnotherapist. But anyway, she. Um, She's a very smart woman. And I said, you know, you must have looked at this, you and your group, and, and been amazed because of the training that Essential Partners did with us. And then we went back and had such a good week. And then when the online group came in and they didn't have that refresher, it was chaos. I mean, I got called a Nazi, I think, in the first 30 minutes from a young lady. And I'm trying to use mm-hmm. the skills that it was we hard. about. And she just was not It was listening. very hard. And, and I know that Melanie faced the same thing. Yeah. And I, I faced it from people that were one person in particular who was in the group, but felt more empowered with more people to back up what he had to say in that Facebook group. Um, and he no longer communicated the way we were in the group. So it's just, you feel sort of like, wait a minute, I got fire behind me and uh, we lost all the skills. Um, but John and I were able to maintain it and he came down and visited and I met his wife and you know what I mean? It was just like, cause we're, we we're lunch, people and we, we all want the same to, to the point at the beginning, we all want the same thing. We want to feel safe. And, you know, I was telling John, I think when you disappeared, you know, when I go into a, a, a building and I see someone carrying a weapon, they're not wearing a sign that says I'm one of the good guys. I can't make that assumption. John might. John might, because of his upbringing, see that and go, oh, cool. I'll go up and talk to him. Might have something in common. Well, because of skills. I'll look. I'll see how they're carrying. I'll see what they're doing. And, and I mean, I'll, look, cops, for lack of a better term, there's been so many times that, of course, you know, you, you're not supposed to profile people. But we, we all make judgments on what we see. It's human nature. And... I'll look, for example, someone carrying open with a holster, you know, is their firearm secured properly? How are they carrying themselves? And and I question when somebody's open carrying because that's not my thing, but that's still the right. And and as long as they're within the law in that state. Uh, and so, you know, uh, that's the right. And, and I'll make us an assessment. But like you, Melanie, if I don't feel safe, yeah, I'm going to walk mean, the other way. I don't go into a restaurant. My wife knows. It's funny when we go in to eat. Is There's an old joke. Go to eat with a cop or go to eat with a group of cops and see who fights to be facing the door. And my wife already knows. Don't even sit in the chair facing the door because I want to sit there. Because I face the door and I look at everybody that comes in. It's situational awareness. You, you, you're you looking to see who comes in. Do they look like there might be a problem? You know, you go back to, and this is uh, this is old case law that went to the Supreme Court. Um, and, you know, uh, it was two Chicago cops saw two guys outside a bank. One guy was sitting in a car. The other guy went in. And he looked over and he noticed there's a whole pile of cigarette butts there. The guy's smoking and throwing them out. Well, the guy was casing the bank. They went over and intervened and they said, wait a minute, you can't, you know, stop and that's how stop and frisk came in. And, and and the point would be the cop can't ignore what he sees and what he picks up. You know, there are reasons. The big problem where profiling became a problem is cops couldn't articulate it properly, what they were doing. And we train cops now better on how to tell the story of why they thought what they thought. John, do you carry a weapon? Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Not not all the time. It's it's situationally dependent because there's a great responsibility with carrying a firearm. If I go to my local tavern, I don't have a firearm on. 
if I uh, if I'm going to consume alcohol, I don't have a firearm on. Um, if uh, I go out to probably run down to the local hardware store, I probably don't come in and grab a firearm. If I'm working in the yard, I don't necessarily do it. Um, but if I travel in my car, oh, I always have a firearm. If I, I mean, when I say when I take a trip, I always have a firearm because there's just too I, I've heard the stories as a cop. I've seen the things. I've read case files. And in some of them, I was the investigating officer. And so that conditioned me that there's a point where I am not going to be anybody's victim. If you came and visited me in New York City, would you bring a firearm? I have to be blunt with you. I wouldn't go to New York City. <laughs> <laughs> oh, even if I invited and you? I don't mean that in a bad I would way. come. I would come, well, Megan. <laughs> if you invited me, I'd probably come, but it'd have to be a good reason. And I probably would have a firearm. If I was your daughter, although I'm much too old to be your daughter, but if I was your you know, close relative and I lived in New York City, would you be worried for me walking around unarmed? Uh, and under current conditions, yeah, I would be a little worried about it, but the world's a crazy place right now. I'm not a fan of any urban center, only even Syracuse. I mean, I'm 35 miles from Syracuse and I don't even like to go there. Of course, I used to work down there and it's kind of like going back into work or something, but, uh, gun crime, I mean, they shot somebody down there last night who will survive, but I mean, you know, uh, the, the world is a dangerous place. And I think what a lot of people discount as uh, especially with cops or people who respond to those things, you see it firsthand and it conditions you. That could be my family. That could be my daughter. That could be my wife. That could be my brother. And so I tell my story and I tell my family and I, if I think something's unsafe, I'm going to tell somebody. Um, but I don't like to carry only because of the responsibility that goes with it. I, I definitely, you know, like I said, you know where I stand on concealed carry, um, I believe it's the element of surprise for protection because if you carry open and you go into a place the first time somebody who's thinking about being an active shooter, they're going to look at the guy with the gun and say, that's the first guy I'm shooting. So why let your, why tip your hand, you know? Uh, and, and, you know, that's just, and plus federally, even I was playing clothes for a lot of years, even when I was a chief, I had to carry every day. And, uh, uh, you know, we had to cover our weapon. You know, you can't walk around with Kojak, you know, with your badge hanging out and playing blue jeans and a T-shirt with your gun on. Yeah, if you're on some sort of task force and, you know, the action happens and you want to identify yourself, yeah, that's a different thing. But even that, identification of a police officer is a very important rule and it's tested in the courts. So, you know, I'm, I'm very conscious. Would you, about that John, stuff. would you feel so that I there or would you entertain the idea that there are some places that perhaps should prohibit guns like Schools, bars, alcohol, and I don't. I don't like gun-free zones, and I'll tell you why. Criminals do not obey the law. Why do these kids think they can go to a school and shoot it up? Because they know there are no guns there, for the most part. And you know, it wouldn't surprise me. The resource officer was not in the building. My understanding is in Uvalde, and uh, I don't know that because that that shooter. His grandmother, I believe, worked in the school at one point. He may have known more about the actual physical protection plan of that school than the average person. So, you know, I I, I am not a big fan of guns. I, I, I find it hard to believe that he was like, I'm going to go shoot out the school because I know there's not going to be guns. I don't think his mental state was, was – in fact, I think he crashed his car right outside the school. 
So I, I don't know if that's, outside. you know, I'm, I'm not a fan of like, quote unquote, gun free zones. I don't I think it's just areas where there have to be places because, you know, you have your right to the Second Amendment. I have my constitutional right for safety, for happiness and liberty. And I feel that it is just as strongly as you feel about someone taking all of your guns. I feel when I'm going somewhere with my kids and encounter a situation where I'm like, well, now I have to leave because I no longer feel safe because I don't know you. And you could be a bad guy. You could be an idiot. You could be just someone who doesn't know how to use it. You could accidentally, I mean, the accidental shootings in this state, in this country with kids who get a hold of their parents' weapons. I mean, there's just, there's stupidity with gun ownership. There is a lot of yeah, it. It's not, they're not all responsible gun owners. That's just, there's, there's yes, kids who are shooting each other, kids who are shooting their parents, parents who are shooting their kids, bedside guns who are used uh, by accident on a family member. I mean, that happens all the time. So you, you can't make a, a mass no, uh, a statement that all gun owners are the responsible. It's the rare thing. Those are, there are a lot of situations where, quote unquote, responsible gun owners had, quote unquote, accidents that were fully preventable um, with safe storage and knowledge and training. And I just, I guess I don't understand why we can't just <laughs> federally say, if you're going to have it, be responsible then, be trained, be licensed, be the right age. Show us you know how to use it. Well, be trained. I don't know about be licensed. I don't know what oh, a license whatever. is. Well, just so that we can track, like, how do we track training. who owns what? I mean, maybe you probably don't want everybody to know what you own, but. I don't, I don't, I don't understand why that's not going to, what's that going to do? I don't understand why tracking someone's ownership of a firearm uh, does any prevention of gun violence. If you use the red flag measures, People who are in the know of that person can do something about it, and I don't disagree with that. But generally, it's nobody's business. In New York State, the year after I got my pistol permit to purchase another firearm, some idiot used the FOIA and released everybody's address of all the pistol permit holders. And uh, yeah, talk about an unsafe, irresponsible thing to do. Now the criminal knows which house to go rob, and hopefully those guns are locked up. But again, you know, that's just, you know, we, in my old neighborhood, uh, we used to get the little, you know, police alerts when there was break in or whatever. I can't even tell you how many times we would get the alert and say, uh, car was, uh, left unlocked and what was stolen was a weapon. And I thought, well, great. Now you've got somebody out on the street with, who's armed, who wouldn't have been otherwise had the owner of that gun, not just left it in the glove compartment, unlocked. I'm an unlocked car parked on the street. Yeah, that's yeah, I mean, I John, agree. you don't even know that's how many alerts I got sure. for that. It just became ludicrous. I'm like, well, you are literally arming the people that you say, we need to keep the guns away from those people who are going to do bad things. So I'll just leave mine right here where you can take it. It made me crazy. These are my neighbors. Yeah, well, facilitating criminal yes. behavior. And again, we got to deal with the criminals. And the person who doesn't store their guns safely is a criminal. In my opinion, there needs to be accountability for, uh, I think, gun manufacturer as well. But but people who are not responsible for their guns and that gun is used in a in a deadly shooting, there needs to be some kind of ramification, some kind of consequence. OK, yes. Well, we've been going 
for a long time. And um, oh, we can talk I, all I, day. We could, we could go. We could go. Definitely, no doubt. Um, but for now, I mean, I just kind of want to leave you with this question: Is there one quote unquote gun control measure that John you think most responsible gun owners would be fine with? Would say, okay, well, that makes sense. That's not going to affect my sense of protection. Fair enough. Let's do that. And that Melanie, the folks on your side would say, okay, it's not everything we want, but it's a step in the right direction. I would say first, because I've really got two, the primary would be prosecute criminals. Prosecute criminals who commit gun crimes. It is the best. Why don't people rob banks generally very often? Because they go to jail. And, and, and I think that would have a big impact if we enforce the laws that are on the books. And, and that's gun control laws that are already out there that we do a poor job of enforcing. And then the only other thing, and I think Melanie and I are in agreement on this, is to do a red flag law that keeps guns out of the hands of dangerous people with common sense and also with a, a correct amount of due process to make sure that we're not taking guns away from honest people. Uh, well, I think for sure. I think the, and I, and I don't, I think John and I are not unusual. I just don't know why we can't, there is not a federal red flag law so that we're not relying state to state on who's, you know, because I think it's something that more often than not, we would agree on. I personally would love to see a ban on assault style weapons because I see the rise in mass murders since that ban. And I, I know I'm never going to get it. Well, maybe not. So in the interim, I would love to see the age raised because I think that when you look at, you know, brain science and development of brain activity, um, I mean, your brain doesn't fully mature until you're 25. And I I do think even though there are some responsible teenagers, uh, I think that limiting uh, purchase of uh, something like an AR-15 and high capacity magazines to 21 would be something that would be a help. I, I, I think that's maybe something that the, even I'm hearing now whispers in Congress that maybe we did the very least because the vast majority of the shooters are under 21, that perhaps that's an issue we need to address. And I think we could probably agree in, you know, that, that permitless carry or open carry with, with no permit and no training is just not smart. And I, I feel like if we could just all agree that if you're going to own a weapon, learn how to use it. If you're going to drive a car, learn how to drive it. Like that seems like a common sense solution. That's not taking anything away from anyone. It's like you you bought a gun because you like it. Well, learn how to use it and be responsible and know how to store it because safe storage is. And John's exactly right. You just covered. I know. I know. But these are things that like, I, I don't think they're far off the mark in terms of things we could agree on because you would agree that safe storage would save lives, but people aren't doing it. I agree. Red, red flag laws would save laws if we could get it but passed. Again, again. So what are you going to do? Are you going to legally mandate it? And then they won't even enforce it. There's already laws in a lot of states about safe storage. Your state probably needs to have them. New York has a law about it, and uh, they won't enforce it. I bet they won't. I haven't heard of anybody being charged with it. So that's kind of my my answer. I, I'm I'm not in disagreement on a lot of them in essence, but if we enforce what we had out there, I think we'd be in a lot better position. All right. Well, John Godfrey and Melanie Jeffcoat, 
I can't thank you enough for having this conversation. I'm glad you did gun conversation and I'm really glad that you uh, extended it here on The Unspeakable. It's, it's, um, this is vexing to say the least, but uh, it's heartening that, that you guys can at least come together and get as far as you have, which is pretty far. I, I think all of America needs to learn how to communicate. Well, you know what? Honestly, if we could, I think John and I, we need to make this happen. We need the U.S. Congress to sit down and learn how to talk and listen to each other because uh, on we can have all the conversations we want and they're not going to do crap. All right. Well, you're going to be, be uh, turn into consultants. You can be a uh, communications consultants, come in and do, do trainings with Congress. Seriously. I would, I, that would be a documentary it. I would love to make is watch that committee sit down and learn how to actually talk to each other and listen to each other. And then I think we would see change. You get it done and I'm with you, Melanie. Let's make that happen <laughs> and see change happen. Yes. Thank you, Megan. Thanks, Megan. Thank you both so much. Bye. Bye-bye. That was part two of my conversation with Melanie Jeffcoat and John Godfrey. Melanie is an actor and gun control activist living near Birmingham, Alabama. John is a retired law enforcement officer living in upstate New York near Syracuse. You've been listening to the Unspeakable Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the unspeakable Uh, You get lots of perks if you do that, including if you join at the $10 a month level or higher, access to our bi-weekly listener hangouts. Those are a lot of fun. And you also get things like discounts off your first purchase of official Unspeakable Podcast Nuanced AF merchandise. I haven't talked about the merch in a while. Other things, if you're interested in my new podcast with Sarah Hader, a special place in hell. You can find that on Substack at a specialplace.substack.com. You can just Google a special place in hell with our names. It's also uh, available on all the regular podcast places. And finally, to learn more about the heterodox women's community I am building, you can go to theunspeakeasy.com. Uh, I think that's about it for now. I'm really not sure how I have time to to do anything that might explain what's uh, happened to my social life lately. In any case, I will be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time. 